Disasters. True Stories. Narrated by Brad Carty. London's Smog. A Deadly Fog. The term smog originates from two mixed terms, smoke and fog. We owe this neologism to Dr. Henri-Antoine Devoux, who used it in one of his articles that was supposed to alert the Public Health Congress in 1905. For if London, crossed by the Thames and surrounded by marshes, had been used to being enveloped by fog for a long time, then the Industrial Revolution was certainly not going to help to clear up the horizon. As the cradle of all modern inventions in textiles, steel, and transportation, England was one step ahead of its neighbors. With its coal-rich subsoil, the country had no trouble getting factories to flourish around its capital and keep them running. The astronomical quantities of smoke produced were then mixed with the traditional London fog, which never ceases to invade the city. The picture is not without charm, and even inspired many writers and painters of the 19th century. But it should not be forgotten that behind its beauty, the smog can be formidable. Sometimes it only took one weekend to take with it the lives of tens of thousands of people. Friday, December 5th, 1952, London had been fighting a premature winter for several days, and, as soon as it woke up, the sky fell on its head. A dense fog with a yellowish tinge slowly descended onto the streets and blocked out the daylight. As the hours went by, it got thicker and thicker, and by nightfall, you couldn't see beyond the end of your nose. At the risk of being repetitive, these delightful weather conditions were an integral part of Londoners' daily lives, so they didn't immediately become alarmed. The French playwright Henri Monnier understood this well. No doubt traumatized by his stay on the other side of the channel, he wrote in 1852, London is a city of fog and coal. After eight days, a shirt is no longer wearable. So be it. So there was no need to worry for the moment. The next day, the fog did not move one iota. Even worse, it intensified. In the southern suburbs, a team of workers on a railroad was surprised by a train, and one of them did not survive the unexpected encounter. Motorists, on the other hand, had their noses glued to their windshields, relying on the faint glow of their headlights, or having to rely on police officers restricted to regulating traffic. They may have had flaming torches in their hands, but they were unable to prevent many accidents. Fatally, the congested traffic slowed down fire trucks and ambulances, injured people died, and whole houses burnt down before they could reach their destination. The same struggle occurred on the sidewalk, where passers-by moved painfully from lamppost to lamppost. A persistent smell of sulfur in the now unbreathable air forced them to wear makeshift masks, and it was useless to seek the shelter in the first store they came across. The fog seeped in everywhere, in the cinemas, in the restaurants, and even in the underground, the only means of transport so far spared by the weather. In the evening of the second day, the inhabitants finally capitulated and stayed at home. The public highway was completely deserted 
The monuments disappeared one after the other. The Palace of Westminster on the banks of the Thames, the Tower of London, the Tower Bridge. The greedy smog swallowed up all the landmarks of the city. Sunday, December 7th, and there was still no significant improvement. No one dared to step outside, and anyway, there was not much to do there anymore. All sports events had been postponed, airplanes did not leave the tarmac, and the avenues were littered with abandoned vehicles, their owners having preferred to finish the journey on foot. Only crime seemed to be happy with the situation. The burglars, pickpockets, and robbers of all kinds took a malicious pleasure in committing their misdeeds with impunity, before disappearing into the mist, neither seen nor known. While the police were overwhelmed with complaints, the hospitals were besieged by the first victims of the smog. More than 150,000 people were admitted, including the elderly, children with respiratory problems, and the poorest people who lived in insalubrious slums and had no means of protecting themselves from the fine particles that got into every corner. Humans were not the only ones to be affected. In the sky, swarms of birds suffocated, free-fell, or crashed into the walls of buildings. In the farms and holdings on the outskirts, cattle were also falling like flies. A correspondent of the newspaper Le Monde even reported that a farmer made his animals wear masks soaked in eucalyptus and whiskey. A daring mix, to say the least, but it guaranteed a carefree weekend of drunkenness on Monday, December 8th, London was more than ever at a standstill. Absenteeism at work was at an all-time high. Schools were closed, the population was confined until further notice, and there was no way to get around without risking your life. It had been 72 hours since the fog descended on the city, which was extremely distressed. Elizabeth II, aged 26, on the throne since the death of George VI on February 6, 1952, faced the first crisis of her reign. Powerless, she could only go to the bedside of the sick and provide unfailing support to her people. A commendable effort, which Prime Minister Winston Churchill did not bother with, being more concerned with the rearmament of the country and the insurrectionary movement of Kenya against the British colonies than with a vulgar pea soup. In reality, neither the government nor the crown were able to do anything, and resigned themselves to hoping for a single miracle, the return of the wind, capable of removing the stubborn smog for good. Their wishes were granted in the early morning of Tuesday, December 9, 1952. A saving breeze gradually dissipated the fog and lifted the veil on a terrible toll. 4,000 deaths in five days. Although Londoners could now go about their daily lives, the level of toxicity in the atmosphere was still dangerous. By the end of the year, there would be about 12,000 deaths due to bronchitis, pneumonia, and other disorders caused by the after-effects of smog. In order to understand the origin of such a deadly pandemic, we have to go back to Thursday, December 4th. 
On that date, an anticyclone covered London. In other words, a layer of very cold air was blocked by a layer of warm air above, which had the effect of sharply lowering the temperature. The inhabitants had no choice but to warm themselves with their stoves. This overconsumption of coal, combined with the consumption of coal by the city's factories, contributed to the production of an alarming amount of smoke that mixed with the iconic fog of the region. The result was a toxic fog, rich in sulfur dioxide, trapped in an invisible dome, and deprived of a wind that could have dispersed the polluting gas. As deplorable as it was, the episode at least had the merit of making the authorities aware of the dangers of pollution on the health of its citizens. In 1956, the Parliament adopted the Clean Air Act, a law aimed at improving the air quality in urban areas, as well as prohibiting the emanation of black smoke and carbon microparticles. With the passage of time, many countries such as China are currently experiencing the same hell as London and its great smog of 1952, with the difference that today ammonia emitted by fertilizers and the many vehicles on the road must be added to the sulfur. If the playwright Henri Monnier were still alive, he would be able to express his witticism in many languages, whether he travels to Houston, Los Angeles, New Delhi. How many days can pass before his shirt is good to go?